Hello and welcome to episode one of Back to Britpop. It's Chris and on this first episode I'm talking to Rick Witter of The Mighty Shed 7. Hailing from York, the band enjoyed some great success all through the 90s and through the noughties as well um, with albums Change Giver in 94 right up to Instant Pleasures in 2017 and they continue to tour and do shows yearly. So in lockdown it was fantastic to speak to Rick and uh, it gives us an insight into how the band formed and their sort of on the road stories and behind the scenes looks at some of the record industry and the music press. Um, come back after the podcast for some chat about uh, how you can follow us on Twitter and, and Facebook and all that sort of jazz. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. How's life treating you? Hi, Chris. Yes, uh, good, thank you. Yes, well, we're, we're finally coming out the other end, aren't we? Which is yeah. nice to see. I mean, obviously, it's nice to be able to, to go out uh, which sounds like a crazy thing to say in 2020. But, you know, I'm not I'm not rushing to the pub. I'm not rushing to the cinema. I can, you know, I'm not really one of these who's desperate just because we've been locked away for 14, however long it's been. You know, I'm, I can kind of, I'll wait until the time's right for me to go out and start socialising, which makes yeah. me sound like a right miserable bugger, but, you know. <laughs> Have you discovered anything that you weren't expecting during lockdown as you've been sort of spending a lot of time with your family and in those sort of close quarters? To be fair, it's quite a boring answer, but usually as a rule for me at that time of year, so the beginning of a new year, especially after a year where we've done a big tour at Christmas, which we do every other year, Yeah, you know, the February, March, April time, I would just be in anyway. So it hasn't really affected me in that, in that sense, you know, I would yeah. just be at home and I'd be kind of staying out of people's way and just recuperating from... 40 big parties that we would have done through November and December yeah. anyway so to be fair I do I do these handwritten lyrics that you can order online which is a, like Shed 7 songs that I would write the lyrics out to and put messages mm. on and you know at the, at the beginning of lockdown I was loath to even advertise that because I'm thinking well people are off work people aren't earning money but then as the longer the lockdown was going on I was realizing that people were still getting paid but not really getting out and doing anything and not spending their money on anything other than food and booze so you know I've, I've, I've been keeping busy doing that to be honest and also a positive is that there was there's been more time to perhaps think about maybe the possibility of writing new ideas which is always a a big thing for us it's always yeah. a big undertaking so you know there's a few ideas floating around that hopefully at some point in the future we might see the light of day this is like a retrospective podcast where we look at 90s indie and Britpop and how it certainly shaped my musical tastes and influenced me in writing music and starting bands and all that sort of thing well it's really interesting to sort of for me to find out a bit more about how you got into music and sort of the music that was playing in your house as you were growing up so what what was what were you into? Going way back to when I was kind of probably eight or nine, I always just remember music being played in the family house. You know, my dad was a big music fan. He was, he, apparently before my brother came along, he was a drummer uh, in local bands around the area we used to live in. But then when, when my mum and him had uh, my brother, he kind of had a, an option really you know the drums or <laughs> or looking after so you know he had to give it all up so I think he was when we first started to do quite well he was you know he was a really good dad because he used to um, drive us to rehearsals when we were in our young teens or and then Paul's dad would maybe pick us up so you know we'd only be like 12 or 13 he bought me my first PA system 
so I could sing above Paul's very loud guitar and be heard yeah. when I was about 14. So, you know, he was always there. He was always very active. But, you know, if, if we ever went on car journeys or anything, there'd just always be music on and be, albeit it might have been the top 40 of that time, so we'd be talking late 70s here, but there'd always be something on. So I remember being quite young, nine or ten, and very archetypal, hairbrush mirror, singing along, looking at myself, <laughs> thinking, thinking you are good, <laughs> so even when, at nine or ten. Okay, sometimes it, it happens for, diff, for different people. Sometimes if you're in, like a musician in a band, you, you kind of become the front man by default, but you have to be quite outgoing, don't you, I suppose, from an early age, and to, to think that that's the sort of thing or the, the, the future that you, you would like to aspire to. So... When did you kind of, when did it twig to you that you might be able to actually put some, you know, pen to paper and write some lyrics and actually write songs? To be fair, I was never really that outgoing, even though I always wanted to be a singer. The first kind of real push towards it was probably in what would now be year seven, year one when I was that young. So when, when, when I was 11, when, when I st- started big school, so to speak, and met Paul Banks. Uh, he was in my in a lot of my classes in in uh, school, and also Tom Gladwin, the bass player, was also in, in our year. But I remember halfway through maybe the first year at big school, meeting Paul Banks, becoming friends, and deciding quite early on that we were going to be in a band together. Um, and I was going to sing, and he was going to play the guitar. But I'd never sang, and Paul had never played the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he eventually managed to find some guitar from somewhere and started to, to teach himself. And as I say, I was always in the mirror, kind of looking at myself, singing along to, to poppets of the day. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it probably took us a good couple of years to even think about writing anything. We just liked the idea that we were in a band together. And we would generally sit in each other's bedrooms drawing record sleeves to the songs that we'd yet to write and I'm literally talking down to drawing the barcodes on the back of each one you know (laughs) so we'd have all of these single or album covers to songs that we'd made names for but hadn't even considered writing the things so from a very early age really the first band that me and him were in were called Enam which was a play on words in Paul's head, because at that time, I remember he was really into all of these Vietnam War films, like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket and stuff. So he, he suggested we call ourselves Enam, which was short for Vietnam. <laughs> because <laughs> wow. you could tell all of our band names didn't really, <laughs> never really been that good. <laughs> um, and we had a lad with us who played a Casio keyboard. So we'd written this song called Creature of Dreams, and Lee Muncaster, who played keyboards, basically we just told him to play the demo song that you could play on the Casio keyboard yeah, as a way yeah. of introducing yourself. So it's just this music that'd go around and round and round all the time. And that was the song with some lyrics that we'd put over the top of it in a melody. I do remember our first gig actually was, I think we must have been about 12. And at the time, I think Paul's family had some foreign German students staying at his house who were slightly older than us, about 16, uh, and we'd put on a gig. So the particular German girl that was staying in Paul's house at the time invited five or six of her German friends that were staying in various houses around York. And they all came to Paul's living room and we did a little gig and played that one song. (laughs) (laughs) It rocketed from there, I'm guessing, and that was the start of it. 
Well, funnily enough, that was to about six German girls. And then when we eventually actually went and played in Germany as Shed 7 in about 1994, there was probably about eight or nine German girls in a big venue watching us. So, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> yeah, so the, the law of averages, that's not too bad, really, in terms of uh, uplift. I mean, it's, so when did you well, realise... Well, funnily enough, without Germany, I'm not so sure whether Chasing Rainbows would exist. Well, how was that then? Because we... Around the time of, um, I think Maxim and I had come out, it was 96, early 96, um, and we were touring Europe to promote a Maximum High, and I think we must have been away for a few months on a tour bus, travelling from country to country over a good space of time. And in them days, don't forget, they were all different money, monetary values, so yeah, you know, yeah. there was no euro, so you would literally find yourself in Italy for three days and then you'd travel on a bus overnight through a border, wake up in a different country. Suddenly you're in Switzerland and you need their money and you've just got loads of little bits of coins, of Italian coins. You can't really change because they're in coins. So, you know, all good. But, you know, after about two and a half months of that nonstop and playing and playing and playing, I, th- I believe that we were... The last part of that trip was played in Germany, and I think it might be Munich. We would play a gig in Munich as the last night of the whole tour before we were coming home. And uh, I do remember we, me and Paul were sat on the tour bus. It was mid-afternoon. The crew was setting up so we could sound check, and it was absolutely chucking it down, and we were just very homesick. And I remember Paul got his guitar out, and, and he started just doing that. And then I'm immediately just coming out with this melody. And we pretty much wrote that whole song in about 20 minutes on the tour bus. And the rest of the band weren't even around. I think they were in the venue. So we took it into the venue and played it to them in the sound check. They all kind of joined in. And by the end of the sound check, we'd kind of written Chasing Rainbows, which is really weird. Yeah. Some songs are really weird like that. It's almost like you're grasping into thin air and saying, thanks, I love that. Would you say that Chasing Rainbows, is that one of the most the songs you're most proud of? Retrospectively, maybe. I don't know. To me, it's just another one of our songs because we've written yeah. so many of them. And we have had quite a lot of, a lot, quite a few hits, as it were. Not, not necessarily that it's that important that they were hits. Yeah, yeah. You know, I yeah. like I like some of our B sides or extra tracks on Twelve Inches as much, but you know they're all our songs. But yeah, I guess it is undeniable if you're a Shed Seven fan and you want to come and see us play live, it is a song that needs to be played. And yeah. and we've fallen into the trap, and it's a good trap, but the trap of we've played that last in a set for so long now that it'd be daft not to. It's just it's become its own beast, and you yeah. know we always end the gig with Chasing Rainbows and everybody knows that we're going to end the gig with Chasing Rainbows and it's just one of those really special things. So for some, for a little bit of rain or a lot of rain in Munich in 1996 to create that, thanks very much. Perfect. But I mean, that that's the beauty of songwriting sometimes in terms of, you know, you could labour over something for so, for so long that in fact you get so annoyed with it that it, you, you jettison it or you chuck it out but those little um those little songs that come out of nowhere uh, are the ones that can you know could be most fond of um, well this is it yeah and you're right to say that because there is so many other songs that do take months to finish you know yeah. you might have a great beginning that you might have a great kind of riff or a great lyrical hook yeah and it's a nightmare turning it into a an end product so to speak yeah. there's not many ideas that we throw away because we're very lazy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but then there is songs that do take a long time and then there's others that 
that come quite quick. And it's funny with us, certainly with me, melodically and maybe lyrically, I always struggle more with the faster songs. I'm, I find it a lot easier to write a ballad. <clears throat> There's time yet for Shed Seven's double double album of ballads. Ballads, the ballad sessions. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when do you think you got the, the signature sound then? Because there's definitely something about Shed Seven that set it apart from a lot of other bands at the era because there was a certain attack and that, that sort of melodic structure to the songs as well that you could instantly turn on the radio or... or pop a cd or cassette in my case and then you would you instantly know who what band you were listening to did you have a like a moment where you kind of thought this is our sound with paul no never it's just always come really naturally and i know that might sound quite frustrating to hear but it, it's just the truth we've we've never sat down and and discussed any aspects of songwriting we've just done it you know we might discuss where it goes next while we're doing it but we've never sat down at the beginning and thought right let's let's try and do this mm. you know and i think maybe that's kind of why we're still going because we've never we've never mucked about with our formula really yeah um, you know even even when we were in bands pre to Shed 7, so it was still always usually me and Paul and Tom was usually involved with bands before Shed 7. Uh, you know, we had a school band and we were all really big on the house minds at this point. So we're talking mid to late 80s. Yeah. And we we do quite a few cover versions of the house martins, but we were writing our own stuff as well. And granted, we were 16, 15, 16, 17. So I've still got some cassettes upstairs, which I'm loath to listen to because I'd have to put my fingers right to your face. But, <laughs> you know, for, for that age, it's not that bad, you know. And we were yeah. writing, we were, we were learning basically without realising that we were learning. But it's, it's, always, it's something we've always wanted to do. So we've been very lucky the fact that we've managed to get to do it. But, you know, we did definitely put the groundwork in and spent years and years doing demos of this and, you know, being told by careers teachers when we're about to do our GCSEs you know what what are you aiming for when you leave school you know I'm 16 year old and I'm basically in my response to my careers teacher to that question was well I want to be a rock and roll star I want to sing in a band and I was told that's a pipe dream stop stop being such an idiot you know mm. grow up I'd love to go back and buy that careers teacher a pipe. <laughs> do you think it's different now though i mean i always think uh, it was a much simpler time i think for for that kind of dream and aspiration because it does feel like a, the industry and uh, how music's created produced and and, and sort of delivered if, if you like is so complex and, and well if you've got a good idea you've got a good idea at the end of the day you know yeah. my lad my lad who's turning 20 very soon he's now fronting a band and you know I'm, I'm seeing a lot of me in him when I was that age and yeah I don't think they're too over concerned about how it should be done I think a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time obviously having the belief that if you've got the belief if you're a young band and you want to get somewhere if as long as you've got the belief and and the wherewithal there yeah. is quite a lot of luck attached to just being in the right place or being talked to by the right people. And then, you know, you're on that first rung of the ladder. You know, we wrote an album called Instant Pleasures, which came out three years ago. And, and we'd, we'd, there'd been a long time before that from our last release. And there was no difference to me in how we wrote that album, even though there was like maybe 16 years between releases. 
Yeah. We, we approached that album exactly the same as we would have done 16 years ago or whatever. It's a funny one with Instant Pleasures because it does sound very fresh and modern, but it's still very Shed 7. Yeah. But there was no aspect of it where we thought, oh, well, it's been 16 years and the whole industry's changed, so we're going to have to do this different. We just did what we did. Mm. So, no, I think, you know, any advice to any young bands would be just to just to believe in yourself and just keep at it. You know, I think a lot of bands give up because nobody's listening, but believe me, if you're good enough, people will listen eventually. We were at the point where we were getting a little bit of a name banded about. I think we'd got ourselves in number five in the in Enemy's top 10 unsigned bands list and all of this. So we kind of were starting to get a bit excited, but we live in York and, you know, the industry is in London, so to speak. So you yeah. know, we would find ourselves, we, at this point, we were all kind of working because we'd just left school um, and we'd find ourselves hiring a minibus, getting a friend to drive it, sticking all the equipment on the seats on the back and having snares on our laps and guitars on our laps and driving the four or five hour journey to London after taking a day off work to do a gig in front of about three people at um, Kentish Town. Um, I was going to say the Kentish Town Forum, but that's a massive venue, isn't it? Um, yeah. Well, the, the dog and duck, basically. You know, yeah, yeah. playing the dog and duck in front of two or three people, and then you'd pack your gear away and put it back in the minivan and then drive the five hours back home through the night to get home in time to get up and go to work at seven in the morning. Yeah, you know, yeah. And that that destroys a lot of bands, but we never let that... We knew that if we just carried on just really flogging that horse, it will move, you know. And luckily it did. So when you, when you um, had those first sort of meetings with sort of A&R and, and sort of record companies, there must have been some sort of relief that sort of um surged through the band and so this is this is happening for us it, it must have been really exciting. yeah especially more so because we're from york and it, yeah. you know york's quite a small city so you know it got to the point where it was a bit silly we had five or six different labels caught in our interest and we were doing gigs for each different label in different various places and then we were kind of edging our bets um, but when we chose Polydor, which I mean, one of the main reasons we chose Polydor was because of just growing up and listening to those classic albums by The Jam and The Who, and they had that brilliant logo, Polydor logo on the front of every cover. Yeah. You know, we just wanted to be part of that. I don't know whether that was a mistake or not now looking back, but you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. <laughs> um, but you know, I do remember, I do remember that when it was really kind of, oh God, was when probably late 93 we got on a train to go to london to sign the record deal it was all it was all done it was ready to be signed uh you know we'd spent months and months or maybe even years getting to this point and we got on a train in the afternoon from york and went down to london to sign it got to the polydor's offices and our lawyer was looking through it and discovered a, a technical hitch which meant we couldn't sign it. So we had to get back on the train and come all the way back to York, very despondent thinking, oh no, is, is, is it, are people gonna lose interest? Is it not gonna go, is it not gonna happen? That was probably the most testing times in that respect. But then literally about a week later, we were, we were getting another train back and signing it for real. So all, all well, all's well, it ends well. But yes, there was that kind of a little bit of, oh no, you know, is yeah. this gonna happen? 
you were well and truly established before things started to get a little bit um, different, I suppose, in terms of the music industry. And certainly when the sort of words Britpop sort of started being bandied around. And Oh, God, we were, we were love rock of love rock. We were yeah. a new wave of new wave. <laughs> we, were, we were a lot of different things before Britpop. But then, funnily enough, we were that as well. And then we were probably shit pop. <laughs> when you look back at that that era and especially those kind of the new labor days and everyone sort of the rural britannia and things like that i mean what's your main feeling about it now that it's i mean it's definitely a you point know in, i think i'm not kind of saying any kind of woe is me at all you know we're still here we're still all right we're still doing well we've got a brilliant set of fans who who for some reason love us and just keep wanting to come back and that's absolutely ace but you know apart from the first flourish of success where we started to chart and we were getting in a lot of papers a lot of the music papers kind of turned on us at that point so you know granted there was a lot of good positivity but there was an awful lot of negativity towards shit seven and i think because we didn't really play ball we didn't move to london which was the dumb thing we didn't you know we weren't seen at the right parties so we became this kind of strange band from the outs, outposts of York, right up north with the funny haircuts and the stupid trousers. <laughs> now, so there was an awful lot of that to contend with. So looking back now, it's a, it's a game of two halves for me because on the one hand, when people were discussing Britpop, if it was when it's being discussed how cool it was, it's always Oasis, Blur, Pulp. You know, and and then when it's kind of the the dregs of Britpop, then it's perhaps we're involved in that, which doesn't matter anymore because that's long gone and we're still here, as I say, doing what we're doing. You know, we had a, a great album out a few years ago, which proves we still can do it, even though we're nearly fifty. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but on the other side of that, looking back, I'm so pleased that we were involved in what I consider to be one of the last kind of major musical movements, because as you've already pointed out earlier, the whole industry has changed. So there's less of a chance now that you're going to have such a big kind of scene where everyone's coming together in it. You know, I, I always think now you've never really get that kind of news at 10 who's going to be number one out of these you know, oh, yeah, you know it's, yeah. I don't I can't ever see that happening again so I feel quite pleased that we were kind of within that movement and you know even now the 90s still a big thing you know I'll, I'll maybe go and DJ somewhere and, and you know, I'll put common people on and people just go mental yeah. you know it's like they're, they're looking up at me I'm still on a stage putting a bloody CD on in a club at midnight and I'm putting pulp on and everyone's looking at me like I'm some type of god for doing it. So like, hold on a minute, you know, I'm just putting a CD on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, listen, music's still going very strong at whatever yeah. you said, which is why we need to really look out for these venues. You know, they're a very, very important part of the music industry. You know, that everyone worth the salt who picks up a guitar and strums it and decides they're going to write a song and gets a band together. The next step is going to these venues and doing a gig. Even if it is in front of nobody, that mm. venue is needed. You know, there's not many bands that form, write three or four songs and get signed off the strength of it and miss, and miss that really important step up the ladder, so to speak, as in learning your trade and earning, earning it. You know, I mean, 
that's mm. why I would I, I can sit back and, and think right well we did earn it we did all of that groundwork we played in front of nobody for a few years and and didn't give up but you know it's so important for for young bands now to have that opportunity so I'm keeping my fingers crossed that in the next yeah. couple of years that's not all lost if there was that distance between yourselves in terms of uh, location you, you guys traveling from York is uh, to London and stuff to do that sort of thing. Was there any other bands that you were quite close to and you had some sort of camaraderie with? Um, well, weirdly, in the 90s, not so much being close to, but, yeah, we'd bump into bands all the time at festivals, on top of the pops, at various different things, and you'd be, some would be polite and talkative, others maybe not so much. I mean, we've always had our own really weird sense of humour, so you either got it or you didn't. But, yeah, we had... We had good times doing good things, um, but the reason why I say weirdly that is because now it's so different. I think maybe certainly if we bump into bands of our ilk, mm. we're all we're all too long in the tooth and too old now. And I get on so much better with these people now because there's nothing to prove anymore. You know, in the nineties, it was a bit there was a quite a healthy competition there. You know, we've written this, what are you writing? And, oh, you got to number 18, we only got to 19, you know. There was a lot of that going on, which is fair enough because it's, it's healthy. But it just doesn't matter anymore. For, for mm. bands like us, it just doesn't matter, you know. As long as we do all right and if people buy it to warrant keeping on doing it and, you know, if we're giving people entertainment and it's keeping us, it's paying my mortgage, you know what I mean? So everything, yeah. everybody's happy. So it just means now, if we do go off and do stuff, and I maybe bump into Mark Morris out of the blue tones, we'll just sit and have a right good laugh, you know. Yeah. So it's a lot different now than it was then, and obviously not forgetting through that nineties period, there was a particular band that were very frosty with everybody. So it always made it a slight kind of weird atmosphere, which wasn't <laughs> great. Do you think the um, the music press at the time did did you any favours? Well, I know you've already said that they turned on you, but a lot of the uh, sort of... Um, well, not get... all of them turned on us, but yeah, the, you know, I, mean, I was showing a chart in the 90s at one point. can't remember where it was, but there was a, a music paper's offices and I was, I was showing a chart by a journalist that says, right, there's a chart over there and that's the week that we're going to build that band up and that's the week where we're going to start slagging them off. Mm. So, you know, that is kind of playing with people's careers a little bit, isn't it? You know, I mean, we, we, I remember having I mean, single reviews, you know, yeah, it's part of the process. You, you release something and somebody's going to be there to give their opinion on, on what it's like and if they like it or not. Always somebody's opinion, so that's all it is. You know, yeah, you've yeah. Got, you've got a strong fan base who don't read it and you're all right. Some of our single reviews didn't even mention the song. It was just an attack on us as people. You know, it's like, hold on a minute. Yeah, fair enough, if you don't like us, at least mention what happens within the song that you're reviewing. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah. But that's, that's just, that's the way it was in the nineties. You know, there was that mentality of journalism, which you don't get anymore, which is nice. And it is, it's, that's quite refreshing because obviously we spent a little bit of time away from it and then came back, um, regarding writing new stuff anyway. And, you know, the, the interviews that I've done over the last few years have always been, we've been a lot more relaxed. What's the future? Is it still to be planning on still writing and, and touring and, and things when things start getting back to some sort of normality? Um, well, the near future is making sure I wake up tomorrow. That's a start, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. After that, anything goes really. But yeah, I think um, uh, we kind of we kind of split in two thousand and three, the end of two thousand and three, and then reformed in about two thousand and seven. 
So we weren't away for that long, but we just missed playing live together. That was the reason we got back together. We just all, we were all still mates. Just missed that thrill of doing a live gig, which of course is why we formed the band in the first place when we were dead young, because we just wanted to show off in front of people. So since 2007, we've been kind of touring on and off until now, really. So that's, I think we've been, we've been back together after reforming longer than we were actually originally Shed 7, which is a bit weird. Um, so that Instant Pleasures album was a happy accident. I'd say we we didn't again. We didn't sit down and say, "Hey, let's write an album." We we've not done that for sixteen years. Let's write an album. We were just kind of probably we were rehearsing for a gig. In fact, that's exactly what we were doing. We were rehearsing for a gig. Paul accidentally came up with the riff to a song called "Nothing to Live Down," and just started playing this. I pricked my ears up in the rehearsal room. Go, what's that? I said, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just booking about. Hmm. I'm immediately on my hands and knees with a notepad, scribbling down lyrics and melodies to it. And before we knew it, we had a new song. It was, there was nothing pre-planned or anything. And because that particular song was quite good, that led us on to write another one, and then another one, and then another one, and then before you knew it, we had a full album. I don't know if that'll happen again. Obviously, with what's just happened in the world, it's slowed everything down for everybody. So, fingers crossed, at some point in the future, we'll consider writing new stuff. But at the minute, we just want to get out there and do some gigs, which hopefully we'll get to do in 2021. Thanks ever so much for um, talking to me, Rick. It's been fantastic having That's you right, on. That's right, Chris. Thank you, mate. Good man. Thanks again to Rick for taking the time out to speak to me. I really, really appreciate it. It was great fun. If you want to get involved on social media, you can do. Just search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and you can engage me there and we can talk about all things 90s Indian Britpop. Also, if you'd like to write a review, that would be absolutely fantastic as well. See you on the next podcast. Back to Britpop.